Father, we again ask that you would attend the preaching of your word. That what is said this morning would be true and accurate and be encouraging to the heart of the believer and would call the heart of the unbeliever. Lord, make us excited for what you have done for us. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we live in a really interesting time. You know, a lot of, I, I like history a little bit, and it's kind of fun to think about what it would have been like to live back in the Industrial Revolution when the cars were just replacing the horses, or what it would have been like for, you know, back in Revolutionary days. I kind of always somewhat romanticize about different times of history. But we really live, and, and especially those who are my age and a little bit older, in a really interesting time because we have seen quite the revolution of technology. The digital revolution is something. We have seen, you know, for me, it was black and white TV. Uh, now the digital high-def 4K te- televisions with circles around them. And from pay phones that cost a dime to cell phones that work on satellites. The technology has been really an amazing thing that we have witnessed. I make a living off of technology. But i got to tell you, one little piece of technology I find very helpful, and that's YouTube. If you've ever used YouTube for something besides silliness, I have found it's quite the educational tool. Um, I was this spring fortunate enough to buy a very small little 14-foot fishing boat, but it's big enough. It comes on a trailer, and I didn't know how to get the boat in the water and back out of the water very well, and I liked the boat at Salt Fork, and I looked like the total goofball the first couple of times I tried it. Everybody's waiting on me to get my boat out, and I can't get it out, and I'm trying to get, you know, like, they're like, oh, no. I I almost broke my finger off one time, and it was just, you know, what a mess. So I just went to YouTube and watched some videos, how to haul out your boat. Like, oh, that makes so much sense. And uh, for changing brakes, you know, my uh, I want to change the drum brakes on uh, one of our cars. Disc brakes, if you ever change brakes, or a walk in the park. It's 20, 25 minutes, you can get a disc brake done pretty quick. Drum brakes. Now that takes a college education. There's springs and there's levers, and you look at, well, you can just YouTube. 05 Honda Civic drum brakes. And somebody's got a video up there showing you exactly how it's done. And then for us people, which most of us are, visually um, lean towards learning, we look at it and we go, oh, that makes sense. And now we can go do it. And I think what we experienced this morning and yesterday is that very same concept. For God made us. He knows we learn visually. He knows seeing is believing. And what he does for us and what he did for them was give them a play, a drama, where they could actually see it for them to go, oh, now I get it. Or I get it better than I did before. For words, just alone, are hard to communicate with. Uh, ben and I were just talking today about communication is really hard. But somehow, the visual aid is, you know, the old expression of pictures worth a thousand words. Somehow, the visual aid of seeing the atonement drives home in a much deeper sense than just simply trying to understand it via words. And so this morning, the Holy Spirit recorded for us as well, not just for them. It was recorded for us in all time to understand what was going on. And we can almost visualize it ourselves, can't we? So we're going to review this morning, pick up where we left off last week. 
this day of atonement. And as we recall last week, Jesus is everywhere in the day of atonement. He's just everywhere. And so this morning, as we continue to work our way through this passage, I encourage you to be looking for Jesus and find him as he is all over this passage. If you remember last week, for a very short review, the Day of Atonement happened one time a year. The, holy, the high priest would dress down. He would not be dressed in his very opulent garb. He would dress down what was called the holy garments, and he would bring two sacrifices. He would bring one for himself. It was a bull, and he would take that and sacrifice that bull first. He would take the blood of that bull, and he would head into the holy place first, which is that inner tent, and then from there into the Holy of Holies. Only do it one time a year, and he would take just his finger and sprinkle the blood on the altar. That was just for him. He would come back out, and then he would take a second goat. Those Earlier they had brought two goats out, and they cast lots, the high priest, not they. The high priest would cast lots. Tradition has it that they had an urn, and they actually had two cubes. One said for Azazel, and one said for uh, the Lord. And throw those over, the uh, two goats, and whichever one God had selected for the sacrifice was to be so. The other one was what will happen earlier or later here in our sermon. He would take again that same uh, animal, sacrifice it, harvest the blood in a small bowl, take it back into the holy place, and he would sprinkle the altar again. On the way out, he would actually make atonement for even artifacts, the, the uh, altars and the uh, candles. He would make atonement for everything on his way out, for they needed cleansing too. <clears throat> and that's where we pick up today. As he comes back out, the priest will come, the high priest will come back out, and now we just have one goat left. He would then bring that goat over, and as tradition says in extra-biblical literature, he would place both hands like so on the head of that goat and begin to pray and confess all the sins of the people. Now, it becomes difficult to understand how exactly did he do all the sins. I don't think that he had to get them all. I think what you have is all that the Holy Spirit would call him to recollect. But just think, on that very first Day of Atonement, he would have been confessing, as we talked about last week, idol worship. For Aaron himself had participated in idol, idol worship, and many of those watching would have participated in idol worship. So you know some of the sins for sure he's confessing. I'm sure he's doing it loudly. And when he's done, the scriptures say he's transferring the sins of the people onto that goat. Again, we can see Jesus here, can't we? And a man who is specifically appointed to this will take that goat, and begin to head outside the camp. There's only one gate, it's the eastern gate, and begin to head outside the camp, not just past the tents, but literally going outside where they meet. How far he went is not known. Um, there are several passages, again, in extra-biblical literature that indicate that perhaps three to six miles, don't know for sure. But he went far enough away, this I am sure, so as to never allow that goat to find its way back to camp. When that person, which would be hours, be walking out in the wilderness in one direction. First, if you figure a couple miles per hour, he's going to spend two, three hours in one direction. Let the goat loose, and then several hours back. He was considered ceremonially unclean. He wasn't allowed back in the camp. So he had to wash himself outside the camp before he was allowed to get back in. Tradition also has it, as, as this kind of grew, that they would take, the Israelites would take a, a rag dye it red and tear it in two. Tie one around the horns of the goat, tie another one near the uh, uh, door of the tabernacle, 
and as they send away the, uh, the goat, because our sins are like scarlet. And so they would watch that rag turn to white over the days as the sun would bleach it out. As another deeper reminder of though your sins are scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. It's not recorded here and doesn't necessarily mean it actually happened, but it's recorded in Jewish literature. That's one of the things they begin to do over time. While that man is leading that goat out, the high priest would continue on the ceremonies because he's getting towards the end of today's ceremonies. He would then go back in to the tent. Apparently, as best we could tell, he must have had some sort of small uh, water inside the holy place for he would go in and take off the garbs that he had put on specifically for today's uh, the Day of Atonement and leave them there. History also says that they were never born again. Every year they make him new. He would then put on the high priestly garb that everyone was used to seeing him in, very opulent. He would then put that on and he would come back out, again appearing now as their high priest. He would come back out and then he would make the normal offerings that day. For every day at the tabernacle, even on Sabbath days, as this was one, even on Sabbath days, they would make an offering in the morning and in the evening called a burnt offering. It was just a general offering for sin and atonement and reconciliation. He would offer those first. <clears throat> Excuse me. The fire never stopped. Then, after he's done the burnt offerings, he would go back to the goat and the bull that was sacrificed, and he would harvest out of that what's called the fatty portions, the most favorite portions that they cherished back then, which would be a lot of the fat around the liver and heart and kidneys. That was the most desirable piece of meat. And that was for the Lord regardless. And he would take that and put that on the altar, more than likely with the daily burnt sacrifices. That's all that would be salvaged out of that. Then they would take that goat and that bull that was left over, and all of it was to be carried outside the camp, just as if the goat had been taken outside the camp, and to be burned totally outside the camp. Whoever did that task was also considered unclean. They also had to wash before they were allowed back in. And then once that was done, the ceremony was really um, done. Again, it is my belief that when it was totally done, Aaron would then go to the people and give them his ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And that would be the end of that day of atonement. The people would be dismissed. What a day for them, especially that first one. <clears throat> for they were totally new to this process. They had come out of Israel, and they saw for the first time God showing them how the atonement was to be made. But there is a curious section in this, isn't it? What about that second goat? Because this is the only time that type of ceremony occurs. Calvin notes that this is the only bloodless sacrifice in the Old Testament. I took him for his word on that one and then researched it. That this is the only bloodless sacrifice. So that second goat didn't die a bloody death. So it's that second goat that I think sparks the curiosity. <clears throat> because the first goat, they would have gotten. That would have made sense to them. Because it very much parallels what's called the sin offering. In the sin offering, the only really difference is when they would bring an offering for their sins of unintentional sins that's been brought to their attention, they would bring a sacrifice, and they would lay their hand on that animal. 
and then sacrifice it. So watching the priest do that was a difference, but it was somewhat parallel. I mean, God, as we talked about last week, is showing them that it's his sacrifice that makes the atonement, not theirs. They only bring that contrite heart. But they would have at least got it. Okay, I, I get the transferring, but what's with the second goat? I think there's two things for us to take away from that second goat. First of all, and as an aside, that is the origination of our term scapegoat. This is exactly where this comes from. When somebody says, oh, they're the scapegoat, they are literally dropping a biblical term on you. The scapegoat literally comes from that. As the term Azazel we see in Leviticus 16 is the only time we ever see these that word used in Leviticus or anywhere in Scripture. Translated almost literally means to be taken away or passed on. The scapegoat is a biblical term. Isn't that interesting? However, I believe at least what this is teaching us and taught them was just a deeper understanding of what happens with goat number one. Because the goat doesn't die. And by seeing that, what would happen is the Israelites would get it. God is showing them a deeper understanding. When that blood of that first goat is dipped and thrown on the altar, that is literally called the propitiatory in the Old Testament language. And you hear of the term, he has made a propitiation for our sins. That means the calming of wrath. That God has been satisfied by the sprinkling of that blood on that altar. And because he's satisfied, those sins are now to be taken away. To never be seen again. He's satisfied. So in one way, and I believe in the most basic of ways, at minimum we can see by the second goat, literally the sins being taken away. And no longer being an offense to God. But I believe this whole ceremony, and especially because of the second goat, is actually teaching us something even a little stronger. I believe God is showing them how one becomes right with God. How we are to become right with God. The terminology used in theology is simply the word justification. That how is one made right with God? Wayne Gruden defines justification as, excuse me, instantaneous legal act of God in which he, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Interestingly enough, what's lurking in the definition of justification is a very difficult word that we don't use much and another long theological term called imputation. That was this morning's uh, confession of faith. Imputation. If you remember in school, <clears throat> years ago, in, in math, it happened for me, sometimes you take a math test, and you just had to get the right answer. But sometimes the teacher would say, I want to see your work, which would always bother me, because I had a little different way of doing math than the conventional way, and I was a little worried if I showed my work, I'd get docked, or she wouldn't follow it, or he, and I'd be in trouble. But there's that, let me see your work, because she wanted to understand when he got the right answer, but how would you get there? I would liken justification and imputation as that same process. For we're declared justified, God says, let me show you the work behind that. That's what we would call imputation. 
Imputation, again, according to Grudem, is to think of, uh, to think of as belonging to someone and therefore to cause it to belong to someone. Let me give you an illustration. This was taken from John Piper. I'm going to customize it uh, only because I don't know his daughter, so I'll use my daughter. If Elizabeth had come to me and said, I would like to go to youth group today at 5 o'clock, Dad. And I would say to her, absolutely. I have a condition, though. Your room needs to be spotless clean before you can go. And she agrees to those terms. And then she heads off to do whatever her duties are for the day and goes to work or goes to the store. And about 3.30, I realize she's not coming back before 5. Her room's not clean. She's not going to make it. So I go in and clean that room. And I clean her room to be exactly the way I want it to be. And Sis comes home at just a few minutes before 5 and says, Hey, Dad, I'm ready to go to youth group. Can I go to youth group? And if I were to say to her, Is your room clean? She would then recall, Oh, no, it's not. And say, I'm really sorry, Dad. I just forgot. I guess I can't go to youth group. If I were to say to her, Elizabeth, I cleaned your room. And because of your uh, repentant heart, because of your sorrowfulness that you forgot, I'm simply going to count it like you cleaned that room. I'm satisfied the room is clean, and I'm going to give you the credit for cleaning that room. You may go to youth group. That's imputation. She didn't do it. I did it. But I think of her as having done it. I just simply transfer the credit over to her. That's imputation. The most famous verse in all scripture that perfectly illustrates that is Abraham. When it says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was simply imputed to him as righteousness. In scripture we see three imputations. Two of which occur on the doctrine of atonement. The first one is the imputation of Adam's sin to us. None of us were there in the garden. Yet, Adam's sin is imputed to us or credited to us. The second and third imputations happen through Jesus. The first one is that our sin is imputed or credited to Jesus. God thinks of Jesus as our sin. And then the last one is Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. God thinks of Jesus when he sees us. In just a few weeks, we'll be celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. So 499 years and 11 months ago, the Reformation was credited as beginning when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Castle. At the core of that, when you would ask almost everyone, what was at the core of the Reformation? It would be justification by faith alone would be the answer. How is a man justified? How is a man right with God? But lurking in the shadows of that as well was really the word imputation. That's the big, big rub of the Reformation. For the Roman Catholic Church at that time had taught something very different than what I'm going to describe to you this morning. They had taught, and still do, that the grace and righteousness of God is not imputed to us, but is infused to us. Now, 
This really isn't just a tempest in the teapot. We're arguing over a whole bunch of terms that we don't really use. At the core of this is, is highly significant on how a man is made right with God. For at the at baptism, they believe that the child is infused with the righteousness of Christ and is therefore justified. However, that just begins the process of justification. And throughout the entire life, the person's justification is made more. But because it's infused into them, it becomes theirs. It's their righteousness now. And it can go up and go down based upon sin. Hence, we have these problem of venial and mortal sins in the Catholic Church. And you can enhance your justification by works of righteousness. So if you were to ask a Catholic, a Roman Catholic, how is one saved, they wouldn't tell you by works. They would draw very much an offense against that and say, by no means. The righteousness of Christ is absolutely necessary. That would be true from their theology because it is infused into the believer. It becomes the believer. However, the argument wasn't about necessity of Christ's righteousness. It's really about the sufficiency of Christ's righteousness. For as one becomes the righteousness of Christ in the Roman Catholic Church, it's still not enough because you have an entire life in front of you of living and sinning. And so penance must be made and works of goodness must be conducted for faith without works is dead. And so you have, at the end of all of that in Roman Catholic doctrine, a salvation based upon works. It begins with Christ's righteousness, but doesn't end. Whereas the Reformed view is this doctrine of imputation, where the full works of Jesus, he kept the law for 32 years. He accepted our sin as his. The full works of Jesus are transferred, just like we see that second goat, onto us. It does not become us. It, in essence, is wrapped around us. And we'll read some verses about this in just a second. But it is transferred to us, and when God sees us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. All of it. And it's totally sufficient. That is a significant difference. We do not have to earn anything. We cannot bring another sacrifice that's acceptable to God. It was Christ's once and for all sacrifice that is not only necessary but it's sufficient for all time. That's a significant difference between the Roman Catholic position where we begin with the Christ's righteousness, but we must continue to perfect it and improve it in our lives, versus us, where it begins with Jesus' righteousness and it ends with Jesus' righteousness. Listen to a few of the verses I'm about to read you as we think about these goats. For what's really to our benefit is we live in the New Testament period. We live in the Second Covenant where Jesus came. The atonement was made. And then we have all the New Testament authors explaining it to us so we can see it even more clearly than they could have back then. Think of the first goat when I read to you verses you all know. Just think of the first goat and see how these tie directly to that to the atonement. 1 Peter 3.18 for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
You see that? 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures. 1 Peter 1.19 With the precious blood of Christ, <clears throat> like that of a lamb, without spot or blemish. Hebrews 10.10 And by that we will all have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In John 10.11, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I think we all get that Jesus died for our sins. And we see that, we, we see it, and it makes sense to us. For Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. That is a clear imputation verse. Great proof text. But think of the second goat now. Some of these verses are Old Testament. Strengthen the argument that they understood it too. As we talk about the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us, think of that second lamb as it's being led out. John 1, 29. Behold the Lamb of God, you already know where it's going, which takes away the sin of the world. That vision of that goat walking outside the camp. Psalm 103. Again, think of that second goat. Verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so does he remove our transgressions from us. Isaiah 53, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. You can see that goat leaving the camp. Isaiah 53, 10, he bore the sins of many. 1 Corinthians 5.21, He made him to be sin who knew no sin. Isaiah 53, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Galatians 3, Christ becoming a curse for us. And Hebrews 9.28, Offered once to bear the sins of many. But how about that third imputation? Where Jesus' blood, our righteousness, is credited to us. Listen to these verses. Again, you've heard many of them. Job 29, Old Testament. I put on the righteousness. It clo- excuse me. I put on righteousness. It clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. Isaiah 61.10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. <clears throat> my soul will exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. 1 Corinthians 5.21, read that one just a minute ago. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so here we go, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Ephesians 6, remember that one? Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Psalm 132, verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your godly ones sing for joy. And lastly, Romans 4, verse 7. Blessed are those who lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. That is the imputation of Jesus' righteousness, righteousness to us. In that it's not our righteousness. It's nothing we have. 
It's his righteousness being clothed upon us. As we near an end this morning, I want to ask or remind ourselves a couple of attributes of God. Westminster Confession, Shorter Catechism. What is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. I want to focus on one of those attributes of God as we wrap up this series on atonement. The word eternal. Have you ever thought about the fact that because God's eternal, our sin is an eternal offense to him? It's not as if God would wake up one morning and go, well, it's Tuesday, the five-day offenses are over. He's eternal. He's not bound by time. Our sin is an eternal offense to him. It goes on and on. That's the bad news. The good news is, when God provides the atonement, it's eternal too. It goes on and on and on. Turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, as we consider the eternality of God as it relates to the atonement. Hebrews chapter 10. I bet that number's not in the uh, bulletin as far as what page that's on. Hebrews chapter 10. Again, think of the atonement and think of the eternality of God as we read these first few verses. For since the law, verse 1, excuse me, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is only a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. We're talking about the covenants. And by that will he, excuse me, and by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Did you see that? Several times, the author in Hebrews says, once for all. He did it once for all, and he sat down. That is a far cry 
better than what they were experiencing back in the Old Testament days. For every year, they were reminded over and over because they knew they were going to be sinning. The next year, here comes that next reminder of the coming Messiah. But the reality of the atonement is that it is a once and for all atonement. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. The effects and the benefits of that once and for all atonement we will now conclude with. To understand just how exciting that is that Jesus finished the atonement and sat down. Listen to the result of that. Chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Think of now the sin being carried outside, those, excuse me, those animals being carried outside the camp and being burned up. Totally destroyed. Think of that goat heading outside of camp with the sins transferred on his back. And now, think of verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? For it is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be, uh, to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see it? Because the sin offering was made in Jesus' blood, and He brought it into the Holy of Holies, and it was sprinkled upon the altar, the perfect sacrifice... And because of that, our sins are taken away as far as the east is from the west. And because our sins are carried outside the camp, which is exactly where Jesus died. Jesus suffered and died outside of Jerusalem. Because our sins are carried outside the camp and totally obliterated, Paul says, who can bring a charge against us? Our forgiveness and the atonement is eternal. The imputation of Jesus' sin onto us and our sin onto Jesus is the work and the formula behind when God says, because I see your righteousness and I see that sin paid, you're justified. It is because of that, the atoning work, that we today get to sit here and marvel in the work of Jesus knowing that we are and always will be forgiven. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his atoning work. Thank you for the fact he lived the perfect life. And that you see that righteousness is ours. We can never worship you enough in this world. But accept this prayer this morning as worship for that. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.